All right. Well, good morning. While they're getting the uh, few AV uh, things together, let me just say good morning. My name is Mike, uh, one of the pastors here, along with Pastor Cleet, who's away on sabbatical. And then Pastor Charles, actually away with Sarah, celebrating their seventh anniversary uh, today, which is really cool. We actually married uh, Charles and Sarah on this very grassy lot seven years ago. I uh, Somebody said, why are you dressed up like this? Well, I, I did a, a wedding yesterday for an old friend in Brooklyn. It, it was great. Many of you prayed for me. It was incredible. People were actually coming up and asking about Jesus and what, it, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What, where sh- what should I read in the Bible? Which was just crazy. It was awesome. But just sitting there in so many opportunities to share the gospel. And that was because I knew my family here in Detroit was praying for me. So thank you for that. Um, unfortunately, I missed my flight. Uh, Marine Corps never got punctuality into me, and uh, I suffered for it for about the 80,000th time since uh, I got out of the Marine Corps being late. I missed the flight, which was, uh, I wasn't happy at all, just missed it like by seconds. Um, so then I stayed in the hotel uh, and woke up about 3.30 this morning, so here I am. But I'm feeling good. I got some strong coffee in me. I got some time of prayer with some of my brothers and sisters. Looking forward to diving in. Uh, for the people here who are here for the first time, I just want to say uh, today's going to be another strong message. So um, come back next week, okay? If you're like, wow, that was really strong. Um, but actually, next week's going to be strong too because we're in a section where Paul is addressing uh, one of the idols of our society. It was, it was an idol for Corinth, it's an idol for us, and that is fallen sexuality. When I was researching for this series through the book of 1 Corinthians, I looked up different uh, pastors who had done series on this, and I, I, w- I found it interesting to discover the titles that they ascribe to their series through the book of, book of 1 Corinthians. One person uh, labeled their series Corinthian Chaos. Another labeled his series Church Gone Wild. And another one, The Worldly Church. And the reason they named their series through the book of 1 Corinthians that way is because that's exactly what was happening. The world was really getting into that church. It was a church gone wild. They were in a state of chaos. Well, today we are in the midst of a section, chapters 5 through 7, in which the Apostle Paul addresses the broken sexuality prevalent in the church of Corinth that they had allow in, allowed in from the city of Corinth. If you're here last week, you know that we, we took up that subject from chapter 5. Today we're in chapter 6. And at first blush, it looks like actually Paul is going rapidly off topic. Because as you heard Nick read, he's actually talking about lawsuits between believers. Did you catch that? And he doesn't even talk about sex in the first few verses of chapter 6. But what Paul is doing, we're going to see this today, is perfectly consistent with what he did we saw last week from chapter 5. Paul is raising his concern about um, the dire circumstances at the church of Corinth in that they were how they were representing God before an onlooking world. Namely, they were reflecting more of the world to the world instead of 
the goodness and the glory and the holiness of God. So what he's going to do is say, you are not repping God real good before an unlooking world. And actually, at the end of this section, we're going to look at the first half of 1 Corinthians 6. What he does is this. He actually comes back to sexuality. He actually comes back to nine different behaviors, attitudes, actions, and practices that violate the holiness of God and contradict their confession of faith. He wants them to live as saints. He wants them to live consistent with the God that they say that they have trusted in Jesus Christ. In fact, you might remember, this was a long time ago, chapter 1, verse 2, he opens up the series by calling the church at Corinth, though they were a church gone wild, though there was Corinthian chaos, do you remember how he addresses the believers in chapter 1, verse 2? He calls them saints. Wow! He says to the saints at Corinth. And basically what he's getting at, and here's the big idea for this morning, this. Don't live like the world. Don't live like the world. That's the big idea. Somebody tell me, what's the big idea of today's message? Don't live like the world. Now, I need the help of the Holy Spirit, and you need the help of the Holy Spirit to receive this. I just want to quickly pray, and we're going to dive in. Father, I'm so grateful to be here on this grassy lot next to our building to preach the Word of God. And I am acutely aware that today's Word is particularly countercultural. But Lord, everything you've given us in your Word is for our good and for your glory. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to this truth, wherever we're at in our spectrum, in the spectrum of our walk with you. And I pray for anyone here who maybe has never truly trusted Christ, that in the midst of my words, they might hear the voice of the Son of God saying, come forth and follow me. And we will praise you for that in Jesus' name, amen. So what's the big idea of today's message? Don't live like the world. Now, you got to, people talk more inside that building than outside. I know it's windy and my notes are flying everywhere, so hopefully I got this packed in real good. Don't live like the world. And Paul's going to give us two prevailing reasons why, as believers in Christ, we ought not to live like the world. Reason number one that we ought not to live like the world is because when we do, we look like the world. When we do, we look like the world. So chapter 6, verse 1, let me find my way back there again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul starts off with a little bit of um, vinegar in his bloodstream. He says, verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Paul is beefing. He's upset that they're taking their petty grievances to the public law courts. And he is just blown away that they can't even apply the gospel to conflict and issues in the context of that church. Now, I want to take a quick side note. Can you all hear me in back? The wind? Okay. I want to quickly deal with how sometimes people misuse and abuse 
this passage to say Christians ought never to use law courts and juries and judges and lawyers. That's okay. Um, Paul himself, so forget your lawyer jokes right now, okay? Paul himself in the book of Acts, he's about to get whipped by a, Ro a Roman centurion, which was against the law for to do that to a Roman citizen. And before the guy's about to flog him, he says, yo, man, you might want to check my citizenship. I want to go to the court. And he appeals to the court himself. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul says when he's going through more trials, he says, I appeal to Caesar. Basically, he was saying this, I, I'm appealing to the highest courts of the land. So Paul is not unequivocally saying a Christian ought never to use the law court. Are you all with me? And let me add to this. In fact, sometimes things happen in, we're talking about the, the church broadly, that involved the abuse of women or children or anyone else where it would be wrong not to go directly to the law authorities. Are we clear on that? So Paul is unilaterally against lawyers and courts. In fact, do you know that one day all of us are going to stand before the ultimate judge, God himself? Now with that clarification, here's Paul's beef. Paul is upset that people are taking trivial stuff between believers to the secular law courts. He doesn't tell us exactly what it is, but I know it's trivial because that's exactly the word he uses in verse 2. Can't you even judge trivial matters? Paul is upset because they are going to Roman authorities to deal with inner church conflicts. Now you got to understand the con the context a little bit. Um, in, in 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 ancient Rome, including Corinth, the public law courts were a form of entertainment. You ever heard of something called the bema seat or judgment seat? That's actually taken right out of law courts. There, the ruling judge would sit on a bema seat, and and after hearing both parties argue and defend, make a declaration. But here's the thing. In Roman law, it was Judge Judy before Judge Judy. They had the Bema seat right in the middle of the marketplace. Swoop by Lowe's, get some stuff for your house, go down to Aldi's, do all your shopping. And along the way, you can entertain yourself by hearing some people argue before a judge. It was Judge Judy before Judge Judy. And you have to know that when Christians did that, it was particularly entertaining to the pagan Corinthians. Because, man, I thought, I thought Christians were supposed to love right? And yet they're taking their own kind, their own brothers and sisters to law court. They were making a spectacle of Jesus, and Paul was not too cool with that. So in verse 2, he begins the first of several fiery rhetorical questions. He says, first of all, verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, I don't have time to explain that, but there are many scriptures that tell us that believers, this is crazy, but it's biblical, are going to have some role at the end of the age judging the world. Read Revelation, read some Old Testament passages. Jesus even talked about that himself. 
He says, you one day are going to judge the world, and yet you're incompetent to try these, to deal with these little trivial things in the church right now? He goes on to say, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? There's the word trivial. Verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Like we're going to judge angels. And we think of angels, let's be honest. We think of these fat little Valentine's Day cherubs, right? That's not what they thought of when they thought of angels. Angels crushed a whole bunch of people in Sodom and Gomorrah where they're trying to do some abuse. He's saying, we are going to judge angels like the age. So if we're going to judge angels, he goes on to say, how much more than matters pertaining to this life? Again, Paul is absolutely incredulous. Now let me read the next few verses. I, I don't think they need much explanation to let Paul's point land. You are living like the world, therefore you are looking like the world, doing conflict the way they do. Verse 4, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your what? Say it real loud. Shame. That's a strong word, right? Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. That's pretty self-explanatory, right? You're doing it before unbelievers. That's a shame. It's a defeat. So now here's my question to close out this first point. If we're not to live like the world because we look like the world when we do that, what's the solution with those trivial cases, the junk between us? What's the solution? The answer is simply you talk it out. You forgive. You grind through it. And then there's this. This is the nuclear option when you've done wrong, the nuclear option for good. He says this, why not rather suffer what? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, sometimes you just got to eat it, baby. Right? You just, you, and that goes against everything we want to respond. When, when I've been done wrong, I want to get it right. Do you? When we've been done, done wrong, our fleshly impulse is to get that doggone thing fixed, right? And here's what happens. Because we're still in the flesh, often our pursuit of making a wrong right, we add our own wrongness to it, right? Don't we see injustice so often being addressed with yet more injustice? No, no, no. Paul says, you want to inflict, but instead you must absorb. You must be willing to be defrauded. You must be willing, okay, to suffer wrong. Hmm. And that's exactly what Jesus did, right? When Jesus was on the cross, he did not inflict the judgment that we deserve. What did he do instead? He absorbed that judgment 
in his body on the cross. And I just want to say, when we, when, we, when, we, when we respond in that way to wrong, when we suffer wrong, we're willing to be defrauded, we are never more revealing and reflecting the gospel than when we do that. Now, I can't do that in my own strength. Can you? But do you realize we have supernatural Pentecostal power to do that? You have the power of the Holy Spirit to respond like Jesus when you are wronged. Now, this first point closes out with verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And again, before an onlooking world, before whom they're supposed to be representing God. Paul is saying, don't do that. Now, you might be thinking, whew, well, that's not me. I have never taken a fellow Christian brother or sister to the law courts to solve some dilemma. Hold on. Maybe you don't take your little beefs to the law court of the land or law courts as we understand it, but maybe you take it to the law court of your clique. Maybe you take it to the law court of your family. Maybe you take it to the law court of your friends. Maybe you take it to the law court of social media. How does that make Christians look before an unlooking world? He says, no, no, fam. Suffer wrong. Be willing to be defrauded. The bottom line is we must not live like the world because it makes us look like the world. And if the church is going to be effective in the world, it's got to get the world out of the church, including this particular subset of sin. Now that moves us on to something that might even be weightier. The second reason we ought not to live like the world is not just that we look like the world when we do that, but if we persist in living like the world, number two, we will be lost like the world. We will be lost. No matter what you profess, if you live like the world, the Scripture says you will be lost like the world. Verse 9, Paul is lacing this letter with, and do you not know, questions. Here he says in verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say in verse, uh, um, latter part, yeah, that, that same verse, verse 9, do not be what? Don't be deceived. Now why is he telling us that? Here's the reason. Here's the reason. We need this because... W- We are told with cheap evangelism and cheap Christianity that, hey, as long as you pray this prayer, one, two, three, Jesus after me kind of thing, it doesn't matter how you live because Jesus is your fire insurance. That is not the gospel. The gospel not only forgives, it transforms. And if there's no transformation going on, yes, it is progressive, there was no forgiveness that happened. You can pray that prayer a hundred billion times, but if there isn't true repentance in your heart, all it was was a dead prayer. 
And therefore, he lists nine behaviors that if people practice, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not an all-inclusive list to be sure. He's probably just hitting some of the sins that were more prevalent in Corinth. And by the way, I I don't want to be a Greek geek with this, but there is um, a rhetorical device, a literary device that Paul uses called inclusio. And inclusio is when you make a statement, fill it out, and then you make the statement again to make sure it's clear. People are getting your statement. He bookends the behaviors that will not allow people to inherit the kingdom of God with that expression. Verse 9, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now you jump down to verse 10. After he gives that list, he once again says, they will not what? Inherit the kingdom of God. Now, somebody here might be saying, well, wait a second. Wait a second. Believers can commit just about any sin. Let's take a vote. False or true? False or true? Can believers commit just about any sin? All right, let's do a thumbs. Ready, go. Get your vote in. Yeah, a believer can, you know, commit just about any sin. Just read the Bible, right, and, and, and look at your own heart. But what you do is you, when you arrive at truth in Scripture, you don't cherry pick a text. You put them all together, right? It's called synthesizing scripture, systematic theology. And when you look at all the verses related to this topic, here's the clear truth that emerges. Those who continuously in unrepentant fashion practice those sins and pursue more of those sins show that they never have truly been born again. Does that make sense? They show that they never really were given a new heart by the Spirit of God. And that's probably why he hits on these particular nine sins here. There were probably people saying, oh, I've trusted Jesus, and yet they were living this way. Their response to his message will show whether or not they're pretending or actually possessing. Let's let's look at these sins. He says in verse 9, Thieves. Thieves. What's a thief? Somebody who steals. He's talking about people who who habitually steal. Anybody here like that? He goes on to say greedy. People who do nothing but covet other people's stuff, possessions, husband, wife, the whole nine. He goes on to talk about drunkards. People who habitually get drunk. And, of course, that sin leads to many other sins. He talks about revilers. That's an abusive person. Somebody who is unabashedly abusive in some way, shape, or form, unrepentantly. Then he goes on to say swindlers, people who are career cheaters. He says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. You go back up, he has the expression idolater, because that's really the summary expression for all of that. Idolatry is worshiping something as God that's not God. And that's what all these sins cause us to do, worship things besides God. Now, this is where we get a little countercultural. I want to dial in on four terms dealing with the topic of sexual immorality. I think Paul lays particular emphasis on that because that was one of the primary sins Corinth was known about. Listen, Rome was no... 
Rome was notorious for sexual sin, the Roman kingdom. But even among Romans, they coined the term Corinthian size, Corinthian eyes, which was a way of saying that person really sleeps around. It was a preeminent sin in Corinth. And, and I'm going to save some time because I'm coming back to that next week to describe the temples and the priests and the priestesses and all the, quote, worship that went up in the name of serving their god of sex. But look at the word sexually immoral. I hit on this last week. He says the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, that is a junk drawer term for all kinds of sexual immorality from uh, fornication, sleeping in your, with somebody you're not married, or, or, or adultery, or pedophilia, or homosexuality, um, pornography. It's a junk drawer term for broken sexuality. He goes on to say, also, adulterers. And by the way, Jesus did not flinch on that one at all, did he? The Bible's very clear about adultery. God forbids adultery. Now, this is where things get particularly interesting. In recent years, it's been popular for some who claim to be Christian authors to say that the church has gotten it all wrong on homosexuality through the centuries. Have you you read some of these books? There's a book by Matthew Vines and others that say, no, 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 we got it all wrong. What you really need to do is actually look at the technical use of those Greek terms. They will say, you know, all that the Scripture really condemns is homosexual prostitution. After all, it condemns all prostitution, and it does. They will say all that the Scripture really condemns is homosexual pedophilia, and I'm trying to keep this as generic as I can, fam, with everybody here, okay? All right? So I'm not going to fill that out at all. But if you're with me, you're with me. That all the Scripture condemns is homosexual pedophilia because, after all, it does condemn all pedophilia. But God has no bone, no, no, no bone to pick, no issue with, no beef with um, monogamous homosexual committed relationships. That, he, that actually doesn't have to be with it. Actually, it's, it's, it's part of his divine design for humanity. Now, I say, has anybody come across that? Has anybody heard that? So I want to dive in a little bit more. Is that okay? Hope you can hear me in the back. There is one other expression. It reads, men nor men who practice homosexuality. And in the Greek, it's actually two different Greek words joined together by a conjunction. And here's what they argue. The first of those two Greek terms composing this English phrase is the word malakoi. Malakoi, people say, refers to, and I'm keeping this as generic as I can, to the younger or passive partner in a homosexual pederastic relationship. We might say a call boy. It was a young male prostitute likely forced by some circumstance into that particular lifestyle. That's what they argue. They say that, he's just condemning that. Major problem with that interpretation. Are you with me? There actually is a technical term for that because that was prevalent. That was called a malakos, not a malakoi. The word actually just simply means soft 
which is why the King James actually translates this effeminate. And it is one of the two directions in our text the, dire- the Scripture condemns homosexuality, forbids homosexuality. And by the way, this, this is fascinating, and, and, and I don't think you can argue with this. God has so laced into the human psyche, into the human relationship, a male and female role that even among deviant relationships, a man with a man and a woman with a woman, what do you usually find? Someone who assumes sort of the the male or the strong side and someone who assumes the female or the soft side. That's what he's addressing right here. Don't be fooled by people who somehow think the church got it wrong for 2,000 years. He's addressing precisely what I just described, a malachoy, the female role in a homosexual relationship. Now, that brings us to the other word. I know this is heavy stuff, right? I, I get it. And I would tell you a joke, but a joke wouldn't be appropriate right now, so I'm not going to. The second term is arsenicatoy. People who try to espouse lies about this, say, oh, arsenicatoy, that, that's a technical term for a male prostitute. Again, he's just he's, he's condemning prostitution like he does all prostitution. And yet, that's just another twisting of Scripture by those who want to justify that which blatantly goes against. If you had the audacity to say that, what, did they, what do you think they said to people back then? You're hateful. You're intolerant. You're a bigot. You're closed-minded, just like we can hear today, however kind and charitable you try and be about that. Now, I want to give you the commentary of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And if you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. Verse 22. Here is further commentary on this issue. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now look at this, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Talking about lesbianism. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. One of the proofs, listen, when that kind of lifestyle is mainstreamed, it's a sign that God is actually giving that culture over. If I'm reading Romans 1 right, do you think we're reading it right? It's one of the signs of it. Um, Homosexuality is wrong, period. And if you think Paul is picking on homosexual sin, hold on. He's going to really roll up his sleeves when he goes after heterosexual sin next week. So I hope you do come back because this will be a lot stronger. And if you're somebody who says, oh, yeah, even nature shows us homosexuality is not right, and you're sleeping around, you're under the same judgment of God because God, 
condemns all sexual sin. Now, let me add Let me add a little bit more. Friends, please don't buy the line. This is also what people like Matthew Vines will say. They'll say, hey, listen, you're making much ado about nothing. Jesus never really explicitly talked about homosexuality. So you're making them say something you didn't say. Well, first of all, all the Bible's red letter, right? We don't just take Jesus' words. But second of all, he set the standard. He actually did address it. He set the standard when he talked about one man and one woman leaving and cleaving as one flesh. He talked about one man, one woman, right? And since all sex outside of marriage is forbidden, then he certainly held up the truth that I'm teaching that sex is a gracious gift from a glorious God to be enjoyed for procreation and pleasure among one man married to one woman in holy covenantal marriage. The Bible says whoremongers God will judge, but the marriage bed is pure and undefiled. Do you really think the church has gotten it wrong for 2,000 years? You really need no Greek to understand what he is teaching right here. And I just want to appeal, especially to younger Christians, because I feel like younger Christians, in the name of trying to be loved and because of the pressure of being called certain things, no one wants to be called certain things, right? That we're, we're being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, Ephesians 4.14. Led astray by the deceitful, cunning schemes of man, not speaking the truth in love. And here's the deal. What is more is people, like an area of sexuality, an area of race and racism, people are appealing to a whole other canon. Read this book, read this book, and then you'll finally get it. If you really want to understand sexuality, race, etc., read these books. And I just want to say, Scripture is sufficient. Everything else is in some way, shape, or form deficient, and in many cases, damning. God did not stutter on this at all. Now, I do want to give a pastoral word to those who might struggle, quite candidly, with same-sex attraction. I want to say, man, we, we all have our struggles, right? Who here does not struggle with sin? Who here doesn't have maybe a sin from their past that does rear its ugly head, right? Who here doesn't? Listen, the fall has pressed its imprints on us all uniquely. It's pressed its imprints on us all, but uniquely. And I would just say to anybody like that here, you struggle just like I struggle. We love you. And we want to walk together with you as you struggle. And until we are all glorified together, none of us have to worry about any of our struggles because then we will finally put this fallen nature once and for all off. And I want to give you a quote by Paul Barnett, commentator on this chapter. He said, quote, it must be emphasized that Paul is speaking about homosexual acts for which those involved can and must take responsibility and not homosexual inclination, which may be due to upbringing or some other circumstance. So we clear on that. I'd love to preach a sermon on that. But I wanted to put that in there. Now, here's the bottom line. If you live like the world, you will be what? You'll be lost like the world. If that is the pattern and practice and pursuit of your life. Now, I'm going to close with this. I'm going to close with some incredible, credible, incredible words. I love how Paul ends this strong mini-section with a glorious shower of grace. 
for any and all people. It's drenched with encouraging grace. What he's doing right now in verse 11 is he's taking us back to the ultimate burden of the book. That they don't forget the gospel, but that they apply the gospel to all of life, including their sexuality. He says, these are some of the greatest words ever. I want you to read them with me if you have an open Bible. And such were what? Can you all say it so they can hear it down the street? And such were some of you. Do you catch that? That's in the aorist tense. That's past tense. That's who you used to be. But that's no longer who you are. He's assuming the best with them, right? He really is assuming the best. He's not going over there, well, you just lost. He's saying, no, that's not who you are if you're really in Christ. And after he tells them how messed up they're living, he tells them who they really are in Christ if they are in Christ. And he gives three, he gives them three expressions, which are not sequential. Again, they're just a collage of grace. He says, You were washed. I love how Nick read it. There was passion in that and, and patience. And I think that's what Paul has now. You were washed. When you trusted Jesus Christ, all of that stuff was forgiven. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I, I quoted that maybe last week because this is what happens. When you trust Jesus, I don't care what you were. He forgives, listen, he forgives um, all kinds of sin. He, he washes fornicators. He washes homosexuals. He washes adulterers. He washes porn stars, and he washes porn addicts. He washes those who truly come to him. He said, that's what happened to you. So don't go back to that because that's not who you are. Such were some of you. And then he goes on to say, you were sanctified. What does that mean? A couple different angles. It means you were set apart for God. It's the word holy. You were set apart to belong to God. I know you don't feel so holy, but that's who you are in Christ. Now live that way. Don't go back to that stuff. You were set apart. You are declared holy. Now live holy. And then he says, you were justified. You were justified. You were justified. What does that mean? That means that he declared us righteous and clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus when we put our faith in him. The greatest transaction of human history. He takes our sin, all of the stuff, all of the stuff, okay? And I got some stuff I'm glad nobody knows about. Frankly, do you too? Sometimes the ghosts from the past try and creep into your thinking. No, that's, that's who I was. I have been justified. And the, and the doctrine is, it's not just if I'd been as righteous as Jesus. No, I am actually just as righteous as Jesus because God has clothed me in his righteousness. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, it says, to stand before the throne. And that happened in the name of Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And by the work of the Holy Spirit to renovate your heart 
and give you a new heart. Rip out of your heart of stone and give your heart of flesh. That's what happened. And Paul is saying, therefore, don't live like the world. That ain't you anymore. Paul says in another place that we as the children of God are, are to shine as lights in a twisted and perverse generation. Don't live like the world. Brian Arpith, you come. We're going to sing these lyrics. It is finished. Sin is vanquished. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. All the glory, all the honor to my Savior, Christ the Lord. I don't know everybody here. And I don't know what you carried in. But I know that you can't out the blood of Jesus Christ if you come to him in repentant faith. Amen. And you could put your faith in him right now as we sing these lyrics. These are gospel. This tells us, it tells you the good news. If you're willing to say, God, I, by the power of the Spirit, want to turn from my sin and I want to trust Jesus. You, in this moment, based on the Word of God, will be translated out of the kingdom of darkness, and you know you've been in darkness, into the kingdom of the Son of His love. He offers Himself to you right now. And if you are a believer and you would say, you know what, I went back and started splashing around in the sewage of the past. If you confess your sins right now, He will restore fellowship with Him. And I would do more than that. I would not only confess my sins, I would ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you in a fresh way. Don't be scared of asking that. Don't be scared of asking that. Because the Holy Spirit is the gospel gift of Jesus Christ. He washes away your sin with his blood, and then he puts his spirit inside you. You are sealed with him in the Holy Spirit of redemption. Trying to tell him to move down the street, even though he's still in us when we start flirting with sin. When we tell him, Spirit, I want you to be in every room of my house. I want you to search me and know me and see if there be any wicked way in me. When you do that, there'll be a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. That is available to you this morning as well. Let's not check the box. Let's turn to Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us.